Hello and welcome everybody to today's episode of the Voices of E-Learning podcast supported by MarketScale. I'm your host, J.W. Marshall from Summit K-12. And with me as always is my co-host, Lena Marie Sully from Canva. Thank you so much for joining uh, this episode. We have uh, a great uh, guest lined up for us today. We have with us Kelly Lauf, CEO of MindSpark Learning, as well as uh, Courageous Learning. And we are so excited to dive into a number of different topics. How are you doing today, Lena? And how are you doing today, Kelly? I'm doing great. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. I'm very excited to spend some time with you guys today. So thank you. I love it. And thank you for letting me join this episode. As I know, you and uh, Lena go way back, and I'll let you tell that story uh, next. But first, we always like to start out every episode with the same question, which is, who are you and what do you love about what you do? Oh, that's such a great question. So I think the second part of that question is probably easiest. I I love, um, I really, truly love what I do. And I think that I love what I do because of the people that I get to do it with. And so throughout my entire career, building these brilliant, strong, um, tenacious teams is just a deep passion of mine, no matter what the work is. And, um, and so I show up every day for them um, because they show up every day, you know, to make a difference uh, in this crazy world. So that's part of it. And I think who I am is um, my family would probably describe me differently than my colleagues, but, you know, really Colorado girl at heart. I love to be outside. I love to explore. I collect rocks, which is kind of a weird thing, um, but I love to do that. And again, I love, I'm, you know, I consider myself a designer and a builder. Um, I really like to take on things that are kind of messy and hard and figure out how to, um, you know, make them kind of better than we found them and, and make them be able to stand upon their own two feet and, and go forward in a really great way. So. And Kelly is putting it timidly, but she is really a great leader. Her and I go way back to when I was first teaching um, in the classroom and was really the visionary behind um, STEM education and the movement in Colorado. Um, so I'd love to talk Kelly, a little bit to you about um, where your vision came for the program and kind of how you have seen it grow over the years. Yeah, I mean, so STEM is kind of part of who I am. It's part of my DNA. And so uh, interestingly, my background is actually in science and engineering. And I was kind of classically trained to be an engineer and came from that world into education a little bit later in my life. And realized that the two industries, two sectors weren't really talking to each other that well. And that if we wanted to make education relevant, we needed to look to industry for those models. Um, and so myself and a colleague, my colleagues, two brilliant women, started really studying what industry was up to, what were the models that were working, um, started kind of scouring the country for educational models that were working and that were innovative, um, and came back together and really built what we consider to be our STEM model, which again, is um, a little bit different than maybe some others, but it's really centered on this notion of problem-based learning and making sure that learning is actually something that's very authentic and relevant um, to the needs of workforce, but also to our changing environments and our changing world. And um, we knew right away that in order for that to be sustained and successful, we had to invest in the adults in the system, that we had to make sure that educators were upskilled in it and felt 
um, celebrated and felt supported to do this work. And so that's where we were really where we put our focus and decided to launch one of the first K-8 STEM schools in the country that was for public school kiddos. Yeah. And it has been amazing. We've watched these kids go through the journey of actually, um, being STEM thought leaders and they have really come out and really done some amazing things. And I think the most beautiful thing is watching kids in the public school space, be able to have opportunities that they might not have ever had. And I think that has been a really impactful part of the, just a small bit of the journey that you've taken. So, um, yeah, but you mentioned something very, very important in that piece. And that was investing in the educators. We have seen crazy amounts of turnout. I mean, turn let me try that again. We've seen crazy amounts of turnover in the last few years. Um, and we've seen that the biggest cry out is teachers not feeling supported. Um, I know that when we taught together and Kelly was my principal back in the day, um, the professional development that she was delivering was way different than any other school system I had been there, had been developed by teachers for teachers. And so that was an important model. Um, but I'd love to hear from you how you feel like the shift has been and maybe some steps that you guys are taking at MindSpark to help support those educators. Yeah, absolutely. You you are nailed it. So we're seeing quite a bit of turnover, but we're also seeing another crisis compounding that, which is that there's no teacher pipeline. So we've worked with some schools of ed across the country that are actually having to close their programs temporarily because nobody's raising their hand to become an educator. And that's, you know, that's a huge issue in itself. I think where you have to start is that education needs to be treated just like any other workforce sector and that the proper investment on the, you know, being paid for on-the-job training being um, certified and upskilled in a way that makes sense and actually prepares you for the job. Um, you know, going through a program that you don't come out with mountains of debt into a job that, you know, will only make a quarter toward paying off that debt long-term. I mean, there's just a lot of things at the foundation of what's wrong that we need to work on that requires policy work and requires some rolling up the sleeves to reimagine the system for educators to be fully supported. Um, you know, MindSpark exists to really truly kind of shift the educational landscape through the adults in the system. We do not provide direct services to students because we believe so much in the, in the fact that we know one educator is the game changer, right? There is research now for years and years. We don't need to debate this. We know what best practice looks like and we know that educators make or single-handedly make the most difference in a child's life. And so investing in the adults in the system is where we're at. And to your point, we believe that educators do deserve to be treated like other industry professionals, and they deserve to have access to tools and resources, programs, and professional learning that ensures that they can help students, you know, have access and opportunities in workforce, um, in, you know, whatever their passion truly is. Most educators grow up in one education track, and that's education itself, right? They don't often come from industry. And so at MindSpark, we really work hard to ensure that educators know enough about different sectors and different industry models so that they can bring that back to their classrooms and to their schools and ensure students um, are exposed to career literacy early on and really involved in, like I said before, kind of these authentic and relevant models of learning. And we've seen that. We Our schools that we work with closely, we aren't experiencing huge teacher turnover. We have high retention rates. You know, MindSpark educators right now, 88% retention rate over the national average. And so I think it does show you that when you invest in people properly and you put kind of human capital first, you can truly, I mean, this, this story could be truly different. 
And we're seeing um, obviously massive changes in the system overall through the pandemic and hopefully coming out of the pandemic. Um, and so much um, of the conversation is around students learning loss or unrealized learning, um, but not enough of the conversation is on the transformation of PD and the transformation of uh, roles and responsibilities. Give us that insight um, into what are the biggest changes uh, kind of on a macro level that you think we're going to see that are going to stick, that are going to last going from where we were pre-pandemic to this new normal, next normal that we're trying to get to this year. Yeah, I think that, you know, what gives me hope is that the, the pandemic really showed us that learning doesn't happen necessarily in isolation in a single classroom or within even four walls. And so I think this idea of that learning can happen anywhere will be will, will stick and will be kept. And I don't think it'll be reserved just for micro schools or for, you know, new startup schools. I think that, you know, the educators that we're working with see that there's opportunities to really enable and activate students to start their own businesses, to pursue their passion if we give them the right tools. And it doesn't always happen need to happen within that school timeframe, but we have to create the opportunities for that to happen as educators. And so this kind of role of, of truly being a facilitator of learning, I think is a huge shift in what it means to, to be an educator. And I'm, I'm hopeful that that will stay around um, as, a, as a positive trend and that we'll start looking out side of ourselves um, a little bit and seeing how we can also involve, again, industry and community truly in this learning process. Um, because we know that when you uplift schools, you uplift entire communities. Um, and so I also think the other big piece that's not gonna go away is this big shift across all sectors, uh, which includes education in this model around workforce literacy and workforce development. And, you know, the way that we get students ready to enter the workforce and this idea of what it means to be um, part of the post-secondary movement, I think is a huge shift. And so we see schools really ramping up their efforts to create viable career pathways, invest in models like PTAC, um, and really start to see how they can start career modeling early in elementary school, just to get exposure and get kids excited about what's possible. And so again, I think that's probably the second trend that I see happening that I really again hope you know continues to expand. And then finally, I think that one thing that we're starting to to just finally see is that we're starting to finally have some viable models of what it means for everyone to have access to technology. And the pandemic just ripped open a huge bandaid on that and made it for, forefront and the center of everyone's conversations. And instead of chatting about it and knowing that it's a problem, we've actually starting to see some solutions develop for our rural communities, for you know, our students who and families who are at risk. Um, and I think that's, again, I hope that that's a trend that continues to expand and grow is that we've got to create um, you know, these digital pathways for students and for our families if we want them to be able to be a part of this changing economy, just a must have. Um, and so I think those are the three big things for me that I see as hopeful, positive, and that will continue to expand across. Something that I wanna also kind of bring back into the forefront is talking about teachers have only experienced one track, right? And that's education. And that's that's all it ever was. I remember the first time we ever did like an offsite visit, we went to like an engineering lab. And I remember sitting there thinking like, oh my gosh, I didn't even know that this was like a thing. And I remember thinking from this moment on, I'm going to make sure that my students know what is out there for them. And so industry is a really important 
piece of the puzzle that I don't think that most school systems or education systems have really tapped into. Um, so I'd love to you, love for you to speak a little bit about the importance of industry and then how you guys are kind of bringing industry to the table with educational organizations. Yeah, I think people before have heard me say this, but I really feel strongly that in this relevancy model where industry is a part of the learning process that, you know, education really does get to provide the what <laughs> and that industry really provides the why, right? They do it together, but industry is this why part. I mean, it's it's the relevancy, it's the authenticity model in itself. And so it's not about industry telling education what's right. It's not about that is, you know, informing practice. It's actually a collaborative approach. It's saying, what are you working on? What experiences are you having? What skills do you want to see in the future workforce or in the current workforce that education can help develop, that education can help solve for? And when I say education, I literally mean students, you know, as young as five. And I think that collaborative nature, we just, um, in all the years of doing this, I think one of the big issues is that there's oftentimes kind of this translation problem between industry and education. We tend to kind of wall ourselves off on either side and, and blame each other for what's not happening or what, what's not going on. And I think when you start to just open that model up and invite industry in to say, let's co-create, let's co-design, let's even co-teach together, then that you see these big shifts in the, in the possibilities of what students can be engaged in. And again, everyone shows up as they are. So you let industry be industry, you let them be the content experts, you let them be the experts in their practice, and you let educators show up as they are, you let them be the educational experts. They know development, they know their standards. So it's not about you know, making one the other, it's truly about figuring out how they, they work together. And at MindSpark, there is not one professional experience that we build or design or engage that doesn't include industry at the heart of what's happening. And I always say, if you care about what's happening in our world, if you care about climate change, if you care about you know, solving for food, if you care about health issues, if you care about saving that you know, amazing animal down the street, whatever it is, big or small, you have to care about education foundationally. And so creating a value proposition for industry to care about and invest in education is key. And then likewise, you have to have education build models that make sense and are responsive to what's happening in the workforce. And I think that is what we do really, really well at MindSpark is we translate both, both worlds, but we also, you know, create spaces and create um, programs and experiences where they're working hand in hand and they're both informing each other because they both need to learn from each other. Um, and the models that, that we do this with are sustainable. It's not like a one and done piece, um, you know, like a career day that happens once a year. It's actually this like long-term partnership and engagement. And, and Lena, you know this. I mean, we started with five foundation, foundational industry partners around a very small table for our STEM schools. And now we have over 700 and they work across our schools, across the country, engaging with students at a really high rate. And it is, it's making a difference. I mean, we have kids graduating out of high school, stepping into industry, making 60 to $65,000 a year that's a game changer for them and their families. So it's, it does work. Yeah. And it creates, um, inclusivity, which I think is an equitability, which is like a huge component of it is that it's not just being like, Oh, you're in this, like, um, really affluent area. Your kids are going to be fine. However they are, but it's opening, it's basically opening the window up for everyone to see through. And I think that's an important piece too. 
um, for student success, teacher success, and, and really everyone in between, because we aren't siloed, like everyone does need to work together and understand that we are really true partners in this together. Absolutely. And I think, you know, cross-pollinating industries is so powerful because we don't solve problems in a vacuum. And so, you know, when kids see different types of researchers, scientists, experts, innovators working together on solving different types of problems, they themselves then know that they, you know, the world is bigger than just this one moment. Um, and you know, it does. I mean, it's a game changer for them. I could tell you a zillion stories, success stories, but it does make a difference. And like, again, this isn't you know, we're just entering almost, we're getting close to our 14th year of this work. So one, not new. And two, when people say, is it sustainable? My answer is yes. You know, it's not going anywhere. And on that note, we know that STEM education is so important and it was important before the pandemic. Even now it's more important coming out of the pandemic, I feel, but give us the breakdown for audience that may not know what is there are a lot of STEM schools out there that a district may have just put in name only kind of, oh, we're launching a STEM school and, and maybe it wasn't a full on STEM school. What does it mean to be a true STEM school and and why isn't every school a STEM school or could every school potentially be a STEM school? Yeah, I think it's a great question. And to your point, we do define STEM differently all over the place. We like to add lots of extra letters to it and, and change it around. And I think that's the beauty of STEM. You, you can truly define it how you need to. But for us uh, at MindSpark and for our work, you know, that I've done with Lena for many years, for us, STEM is a PR hook. It's it's those, those four um, letters mean a lot to us in terms of it's an all-inclusive model. So it includes arts, it includes literacy, um, but it is, it's a nice, simple hook, to be honest. And for me, STEM is workforce literacy. It's this idea of, you know, students fully engaging in authentic problems that real adults are working on coming up with their own viable solutions at an age-appropriate standards-based level, um, and then being able to present their ideas back to an authentic audience to get feedback. And then living those solutions out, it's not a simulation. We're not just here to pretend we're doing this. We're going to do it, and we're going to invest in those ideas. We're going to show you what it means to be entrepreneurial and have that mindset. And I think that's really key. And, in, and for me, if you're going to put your STEM on a school, it's an all, all in model. So my core teachers are doing this kind of problem-based learning aspect. My specialist teachers are doing this. My counselors know about it. You know, it's, it's a whole school model for me. It's not an after-school club. It's not a single class. It's not one pathway in a high school. It is the model of how we teach and learn. And I think that is probably the biggest difference for some of the other you know, models or, or schools that we work with is that um, while we certainly define STEM differently all over, I think the lift of what we expect is a little bigger in that it's a little bit of unlearning to learn again um, for the adults in the system. And it's you know saying to teachers, you're part of this ecosystem. And so you get the autonomy to decide how you want to engage in this because I trust you as a professional. I'm going to upskill you in STEM sectors so that you know enough to be, you know, engaged and dangerous and, and helping kiddos with this, but not enough that I'm yanking you out to go work somewhere else. So it's like that balance of support. Um, and I think that it's also a full family initiative too, right? It's helping families understand what opportunities are available for their kiddos, what industries exist in their own backyard. 
um, how that might be different than their own career path or what they, how they see themselves. So it's a, it's a very big piece, but when it comes together, there's, you know, my teachers will often say to me, like, I couldn't teach any differently. Like, I don't, I don't know what I would do if I had to kind of quote unquote, go back to regular teaching. Like, I don't know what I would do. And I think, um, it just becomes part of an identity piece and you start to change the narrative for kiddos about what's possible. And that's, that is what, you know, that's why I do this, um, to be honest. So it's, it's bigger than just, you know, like I said, a robotics club or, you know, one course, it's a, it's an all in model. So it does, it takes more work and it takes a little bit more, you know, willingness to want to do that. I agree. And I think when you do come out, like as a teacher and you come into the education system, it's very still, um, a lot of places are very traditional, but exactly what Kelly is saying, once you become a STEM teacher and become a teacher of this capacity, it's very challenging. I've experienced it. It's very challenging to go back the other way, knowing what students are now capable of and the possibility. And it's even tougher when you go back to a traditional type of school setting um, and then not having that buy-in around you. So it is really important that it is a whole ecosystem and um, it's not just one class or one thought methodology. It's actually intertwined into everything. And you'd be surprised how much growth students are able to show, how much resilience they have and how much resilience it takes for the teachers as well, because you do have to unlearn. And you also have to unlearn that failure is like, you have to learn that failure is okay. And it's an okay process to be in. And I think people get very uncomfortable when they do fail, (laughs) but failure is a huge skill set that can transcend anything that you do and any, anything that you approach in your life. Yeah, we like to say failure is a bruise, not a tattoo. So mm. <laughs> it's always an option and you gotta, you know, it's what you learn from it that matters, but that was our mantra, right? We know it's fail, fail fast and pivot. And I think that when you have a mindset around this idea of experimentation um, and that you allow educators to really see their classrooms as a place to design and to, you know, work alongside students. I mean, I have high school teachers that tell me that their, their students are like their colleagues, right? They're in the research together. They're in the, the designing together. Um, then it, it is different. Again, I just, you know, something that you kind of have to see firsthand a little bit and experience, but um, I mean, and then all the data points that people do care about follow along. Higher student achievement rate. You have closing the gap in graduation rates, you know, I mean, all those pieces follow along on this model. So I, we didn't build the model to address those things, but the byproducts of the model are that, you know, the metrics that we do care about in education come along right away with it. So it's good. It's good. So since we've seen such a steady shift, obviously because of the pandemic and the things that have happened as a result of the pandemic, if you are a school and you're thinking to yourself, I need to make a change what steps would you suggest for them to make? And I know that um, MindSpark has worked on some really amazing things. So love to also share a little bit about that and how schools can have a big takeaway from this. Yeah. I mean, I think I tell schools and, and, you know, fellow principals and leaders all the time, stop and stop kind of investing in stuff and start investing in your people. And so I think that if you want to make a big shift in what's possible in your school, then you have to take some stock of what's going on in the culture of your school and in the teaching and learning model that you are deploying and really kind of 
step back and take a reflective look at that and start working at that level of what do the adults in your system need in order to be the best they can be for kids every day. And, you know, we really work hard with schools on that foundational piece because it doesn't help anyone to build upon a broken foundation. And so you've got to tackle that culture piece. You've got to tackle uh, what it means to be a leader, what it means to, again, invest in professional capital. Um, and oftentimes schools just need some help with that um, and, and, you know, can then be off to the races. So I think that's a place to start. It's very easy and it's fun to get a one-to-one initiative. It's easy and it's fun to invest in cool new curriculum. It's easy and fun to build a new course. But again, all of that thing, all of that stuff, right, built on top of foundation or culture that's not as invested or is suffering or, um, you know, you have an empty parking lot every day at 2.30, it's none of it's going to work. It's a, it's a waste of your money. And so I think helping school leaders and teacher leaders understand how to better care for themselves and their system is really, it's really the first step, to be honest. And then we can upskill in all kinds of fun things. Then we can talk about engineering pathways and, you know, all the, all the fun things that we, that we do know are good um, for kiddos and good for families and communities, but we've got to take care of the people inside of our buildings first. And just to follow up to that, once you set that foundation, um, I feel like a lot of schools struggle with change. They struggle with, you know, getting away from the status quo as far as, well, things are working pretty good. And it, and it feels like coming out of this pandemic, good isn't good enough anymore. It's the enemy of great. And you he- are hearing more and more stories of greatness, of whether it's the software they're using, the PD that they're implementing, the, the changes that they're making that it, it is attainable for every school to be great now. And so what advice would you have for schools that are maybe in that rut and maybe they've made a few incremental changes by necessity through the pandemic, but there's still just that fear of sliding back a little bit to pre-pandemic 2019 uh, ways that weren't that great for you know their students and for their teachers. What encouragement would you give to um, kind of keep that systemic change and innovation at the forefront going into 2022, 2023? Yeah, I I mean, I think that there's no better time or more exciting time to be a teacher, which I know sounds crazy given how exhausted everyone is that I work with, but this is such an exciting time. And so I think that schools need a rallying point. And if that for you is kind of choosing a new identity or, you know, maybe you want to become a STEM school or maybe you just want to be the best darn neighborhood school on the planet, you need to have a rallying cry. And so, because, and you have to kind of hold that torch tightly and it needs to be authentic to actually what you want to accomplish. So I think that's the first piece of that. I also think that we need to understand as educators and school leaders that we are the system. I think oftentimes we get this kind of helpless mentality because there's a lot of things that are done to us, right? We're kind of, we kind of tend to get, you know, um, top down a lot in education. And I think that we need to understand we are the system. And by being the system, that destination, that fate is actually up to us. So if you want to be the best star neighbor at school on the planet, that's possible because you're doing that work, right? No one else is going to come in and do that for you. And you, this is possible because you're here. And so, you know, we need to be honest about what we need to have in education that we're missing. You know, a lot of times we pretend in education that we know everything because we're part of this, you know, system that uniquely teaches all students. 
but we don't. We know we don't know a lot about a lot. And so I think being honest and saying, I'd love to part with partner with industry and build an optics program. I don't know anything about optics, but I know a lot about how to be a really good teacher. So if I invite industry in to help me with that content, I know I can develop an amazing program. Or you know what? I've been doing this for a while and I still don't know how exactly I should provide that intervention for this one kiddo who needs it desperately. I need to be able to say, I need help and the system needs to respond in the appropriate way. And teachers, you know, especially are expected to do everything. And we hear that all the time. My plate is full, I'm exhausted. And I think it's just time <laughs> to be honest, to like reinvent the plate. Like let's just do away with all that and think about the things that we cherish in industry that we can put into education that will make a huge difference for the people that matter, for the people doing the work. Um, and I think that's a huge, you know, those, those are pieces that I, I think are key, but for people that are just on that cusp of greatness, just keep going forward. I mean, again, like, you know, we can't wait around and in education, we love to pilot everything for three to five years and then blame each other when it doesn't work. You need to do it now. Like, it's go time now and you can figure this out, but don't do it in a vacuum. Don't do it by yourself. Education, helping education is not helpful at all. So team up with some industry partners, team up with community partners, start thinking about what your students need, about what's relevant in your community and build for that and have that identity and go. And again, I think, you know, everyone can do this. I've seen so many schools be able to do this and take six months to a year. You know, this is not a long play. So it can happen. JD, but you look like you were going to say something there. <laughs> yeah, I, mean, I was just going to add to it. We're so passionate on this podcast about continuous education, not just for students, but for educators. And so many educators have had gotten in the rut over the last decade of just, well, this is the way I've always done it. And they've been completely disrupted now. And, and I, I hope the takeaway out of this is we have to practice what we preach. We have to model for the students that we're innovating whether it's every year or every month or every day. And I love the ideas about working with industry. That's something new that a lot of educators haven't done. That's a great way to innovate and practice and model that continuous learning that, you know, and it's just more, more engaging. I would think that the teachers that are embarking on this continuous education are the ones that are the most engaged and, you know, enjoying what they're doing because no two days are the same and they're owning that process. Um, I'm guessing this is not a new concept for you. This is something you've been preaching for over a decade. Why is it taking a pandemic to, to kind of wake everyone up in the system to that uh, just doing things the way we've done them in the past is not a good model for our students? And I think the pandemic kind of pulled back the carpet or we, we Minds of Accuracy kind of picked it up the big rocks and really brought to light a lot of things that we've probably known for a while, but just didn't want to, didn't have the bandwidth, time, money, to invest in and the pandemic left us no choice. And I am very hopeful that kind of within this great reset that we're in, that education will take hold and take full advantage of the opportunity before it to, to do something different. Um, I, you know, education, like we know it works. <laughs> we know again what best practice is. We don't, there's not, there's no big debates around that in education. And so I think that there's this, you know, concrete knowledge base of, of what works and what doesn't. And so giving schools this sort of openness and this freedom and this ability to say, 
I want to do better. I want to serve my community better. I want to be an innovative hub or a creative hub in my community and not just the byproduct of sort of, you know, my zip code or byproduct of this of society. I want to actually lead this charge. You know, what, what does it look like to put schools at the forefront of your community? And that's really what schools should be solving for right now is really embracing um, what's this exciting moment, right? This idea that tech is exploding, the idea that there are these big problems to solve and kids have some of the best, brilliant and most creative ideas towards solving them. And they care, they deeply care about solving these problems. We've seen entire attitudes, behaviors, and practices change in a community because kids are saying it's important. And so it's embracing that right now that I think is, is certainly just really, really key. And I think the pandemic exposed a lot, and I think it would be incredibly disappointing and almost educational malpractice if we didn't seize the opportunities to start addressing some of these big, hairy, messy problems. And um, and I and schools that are doing that and systems that are doing that um, are changing the game for their kids, for their communities, for their families. Um, and those who are not will be left behind. And you know, and we we can't some degree can't let that happen. It's education is a redeemable system. We hear a lot from people how broken it is. And yes, it's big and messy, but you know, especially in this country, we educate everyone. Everyone has access and opportunity and it may not always be equitable, but it is there. And so we have this kind of moral imperative to make sure that it's the best it can be for every single student, every single student, no exceptions. Um, and there's multiple ways to do that, but I think you have to be responsive to what's in your backyard and around you and invite, like I said, partners to the table. And I also think that what schools can be thinking about, sometimes they think that they're in the fight alone. And unfortunately you can go to districts and every school's operating so differently. And it's always just like an interesting model wherever you go, but there are other people, everybody's fighting the same fight. And so there are services. I always think about this, like at MindSpark, you have your disruptive certification and things like that, but what districts need to be thinking about or the principles at each school investing in your people, you know, that needs to happen to be able to forcibly have change. But instead of buying that new curriculum, that isn't going to be a change maker. Why don't you take those resources and bring somebody to the table that has with a proven record to be able to help you and guide you because at the end of the day, your plate isn't going to change, right? It's still as heavy. The weight is always sitting there on your shoulders. So what are you going to do with it? You can either keep walking the walk or you have someone help you carry the weight. And so I think that's an important thing that people should think about doing because it's an investment. It's not just an investment for the first 90 days. It's an investment forever. These city, these schools stay for for years and years and years, and they lift the community up. And so it's important aspect to be able to reach out for help. Do you have any suggestions for schools that are doing that or wanting to take that leap? Yeah, I think one thing I always tell schools is just to start with a simple mapping um, assessment map. I would just sit down and, and think about who, what kind of industry resides in proximity to you or you know would be important to your community. And sometimes in small rural communities, that looks like the John Deere retail shop. Sometimes that looks like advanced manufacturing. Sometimes that looks like a lot of retail shops. Um, it doesn't matter if you don't have massive industry in your backyard or you don't have 
you know, live in an urban core where there's a, a bunch of different types of businesses. In this day and age, business is everywhere, first of all. So um, solving for just getting access to, to companies is, is one thing. But I think that, you know, taking that asset map, seeing what other community organizations we can work with. You know, we started uh, our STEM school. A lot of our kids, you know, didn't, didn't have three meals a day or didn't have access to clothing. And so um, I, as the you know principal, didn't have the budget to, to take care of that. But I did have the resources to say to community partners, let's work together and solve for basic human need first so that as students are coming in here to learn, you know, they're not worried about that. They're not, we're taking care of those needs. And so sometimes it's just, you know, partnering to make sure that people have access to basic care and basic needs. But I think in terms of the learning model, having industry really come in and share. And I just say, you just need to ask two simple questions. What are you working on? What problems are you trying to solve in your industry? And what are authentic work products for you look like? And then those two questions for educators spark immediately a million different things. Like, oh my gosh, I could have my students writing about this. I could have my students reading this. I could, you know, it just starts to like go from there. And so I don't think this needs to be overly complex. I don't think that you have to, you know, have someone out cold calling, begging people to come into your school. I think it's really about sitting down, you know, taking a, a clear view of what's in front of you and then just figuring out ways that they can authentically be involved in what you need and then where you want to go and build it together. It's, it's really not, like I said, it's a pretty simple, <laughs> a pretty simple strategy. Um, that I think all schools can deploy. I don't think you need to be a STEM school to do this. I think you can be any type of school and have this opportunity. And it seems like in the short term, you could even leverage technology and uh, be, you know, working with industry remotely to broaden, you know, your pool of people that could be involved and also kind of do a testing ground before you start going on site or having people come to campus. So it seems like industry is more willing to participate at different levels now. Um, post-pandemic uh, than they were maybe before as well. Uh, my last question is um, kind of coming back to technology again. We talked about STEM being uh, potentially at the heart of every campus now, right? STEM has become STEAM and then STREAM, and then eventually it is kind of everything. And I think we had to have STEM in past decades because it wasn't in the heart of what we were doing. It was on the peripheral and then a supplement, and now it's part of the core through the pandemic, technology has kind of made the same transition, right? From a supplement, from a, you know, auxiliary, from a nice to have to really being a part of the core. Um, and then Voices of E-Learning, we talk a lot about technology. Just talk to us a little bit about the impact that you've seen, again, maybe more from that PD and district, you know, a lens of how can technology stay a part of the core and not replace teachers, but be an enhancement to the student experience, the teacher experience, to the administrator experience to help them get more done with less, be more efficient, effective, and engaging. Um, we'd love for you to kind of end on, uh, you know, your vision of the future of technology in the classroom and in the, in the schools. Yeah, I think that technology is this powerful resource and tool. And oftentimes we treat it like it's something that's very different than that. We treat it as sort of like a magic bullet or we treat it as this great barrier to decide who can and who cannot. And I think if we really start to see the value of tech as an enablement tool, um, then it becomes something that we, we do wield, right? In terms of, uh, to your point earlier, connecting with industries that aren't in our backyard 
to networking with other educators. I talked to so many teachers who just feel alone, who just feel like I'm out here doing the best I can and I don't have a collaborative environment. So, but technology can enable that. You know, I see some of the best ideas and lesson plans on social media. Um, so people connecting to each other, I think is really important. I also think we, in the past, um, have used technology as sort of this punishment for kiddos. Like you get to, you know, you cannot have your phone. You only get to be on the computer for a certain amount of time. If you cannot control yourself, X, Y, or Z, you know, like all these, we put up a lot of rules. We spend a lot of time with rules around tech. And I think the pandemic also kind of blew that open where, you know, tech regulation and technology openness has got to be something that we're paying attention to and that we're making sure students have because they know what to do with it, whether we like it or not. And, um, and so also connecting students across expanses, right? Having rural communities connect with each other, having students from different countries connect with each other is really powerful. Um, and so we have to embrace that as education and we can't hold up that progress. We can't be the ones that are you know, saying no We've got to have course boundaries when it comes to tech. And I think part of that is upskilling educators in what's possible with tech. I think it's exposing them to different kinds of apps. I think it's exposing them to different kinds of platforms. I think it's having them be excited to be creators and use something like, you know, to lean on like Canva to create and, and design and, and be in charge of that piece. And so um, I think that tech should be across every sort of content and discipline. I don't I think, you know, we should do away with the days where you tech is reserved for a single course or a single path, and it should be part of everything that we do in the classroom. Um, and I think that the one thing we have got to solve for is access and making sure that our students everywhere have access to uh, worthy tech because it is so important for workforce development. Um, so that's where our attention should be, but we shouldn't, it shouldn't be about saying, you know, <laughs> no to opportunities. It should be helping educators um, themselves understand what to do with these amazing tools and resources. Because again, it's only going to get more expansive and more um, progressed. And we don't want the adults in our system to be the, the challenges or the barriers to that. And um, because they don't, because they need to be upskilled. So I think spending some time in PD for them on that would be really important for people. Yeah, I could not agree more. I think I think technology is our daily lives. And I think if you shut it out, it's just hindering everyone's ability. You can learn anything, anytime. So I think it's important to, I've always been an advocate of intertwining technology into everything that we do, because if you don't teach them how to navigate it correctly, it can become really problematic very, very quickly. And so it's important to understand that when we ban it from, from all four walls, it doesn't do anything besides make them want it more, right? Like I want to do more inappropriate things because that's what I want to do because everyone's banning me from that. So when we support it and understand that if it's a safe space, while there's always going to be things lurking around the corner, it's about how do you navigate it? How do you navigate information? Um, and how do you bring that to the table to celebrate it rather than, um, this textbook that we never look at again? Like, it's just an important part, just going to get more immersive, metaverse things are happening. It's just going to happen. So you just have to know it's there and it's lurking around every corner. You might as well just bring it in and say, Hey, come sit at the table with me. Yeah. One of the things we do in our PD, right. Is talk to educators and school leaders around really understanding what's needed in both a physical space, a digital space and a social space, because those three different types of learning environments are critical. And we 
you know, historically it's focused so much on the physical space of education, but now there's, we really are responsible for this digital space and the social space, to be quite honest. And so helping, uh, again, the adults in the system navigate those, I think is just really important to your point. Exactly. Well, we are so, so honored to have had you as a guest on this episode of the Voices of E-Learning. Any last words or thoughts that you'd like to share with our audience today? No, I just want to thank you both for your time, for the amazing work that you do and for giving, you know, strong voices to to those of us in education to share. And um, I'm very excited and hopeful about the future of education. So thank you both us as well. And we will make sure to share all of um, everything that Kelly has been involved in and a part of, and those will all be in the episode show notes as usual. So thank you so much again for joining us on this episode of the Voices of E-Learning supported by MarketScale. Be sure to check us out anywhere where you listen to your favorite podcasts or on the MarketScale website. And always keep learning. Thanks everybody.